thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And it is that time when we satisfy our curiosity about our world, life in general, health matters, all of that. Bring it on. We're ready. Well, he's ready. He's got the difficult task of answering the questions, of course. 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Good morning, Chris. Lovely to chat to you again. Hey, good morning, Reggie. Yeah, the line is perfect. It's been a while. Let's start with planet Kepler. Um, what's the significance of, of, of this measurement? The smallest uh, exoplanet mass has been measured. What does this all mean? Well, in a star system far, far away, well, abandoning the cliche anyway, Kepler-138b is the smallest so-called exoplanet, which means a planet orbiting a star that's not our own, that's yet had its mass measured. Now, why this is important is that the Kepler space mission... Um, launched in 2009, ran for four years, surveyed some 150,000 potential stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. And it was providing data to space scientists so that they could look for any signs of that starlight winking on and off, specifically as little planets passed in front of it, because as a planet goes between us and the host star, then the starlight drops very, very slightly and then comes up again. And the time it takes the light to dip and come up again tells you a bit about the size of the planet, it tells you a bit about how fast the planet's moving and so on. Uh, And also, in some cases, you can look at the colour of the light coming from the star and see how that changes in response Mm -hmm. to the gravity of the planet. This tells you a little bit about how much the planet must weigh. Now, when you get down to very small-scale planets, though, which this one is, it's about two-thirds of the size of Mars, or just 6.7% of the size of the Earth, then it doesn't have enough gravity to distort the light from the star enough so that you can actually see that difference. So scientists had to resort to different means to, to weigh or establish the mass of this world that's out there. It's about 200 light years away, so it's quite some distance from Earth. And the star that we're looking at here, Kepler-138, it's a red dwarf star, and it's about as big on our telescopes as if you were looking at a golf ball about 10 million kilometres away. In other words, you've got to have some really pretty fine optics to see this. So these are very difficult measurements to make. And what this group, Eric Ford and his colleagues, have done at Penn State University is that they have, because they need to try and establish the mass of this planet, they've established there are actually three fairly small planets orbiting this distant star. And because each of the little planets tugs on each of the other planets with its own gravity, then their orbits change very subtly and predictably because they're all interfering with each other. And it's that that has told them how much this world must weigh. And that's how they've managed to establish we've got something which is nearly the size of Mars. It's very close in to the host star. It's probably 320 degrees C on its surface, so it's no place for life to live. But at just 6.7% of Earth's mass, it is the smallest planet yet to have its mass 
established um, in this survey of some nearly 5,000 of these exoplanets that have been um, fingered as potential candidates by the Kepler mission. And this is enabling us now to begin to set some rules for what distant systems look like, how they may have formed, and therefore we can constrain and refine the model of how we think our own solar system formed some four and a half to five billion years ago, which at the moment is all a little bit theoretical and based on an N of one, an observation of our own system. By looking at other systems, we begin to learn a lot more about how we came to be here. Oh, exciting indeed. Nova Edal moment. Our lines are open for you. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Yes, Louise in Littleton. Good morning. Hello, good morning, Reedy. Morning, Chris. Mm. Hi, Louise. I'd like to know how lemon juice, which is an acid, can have an alkalizing effect on the system, especially the urine system. Uh, My urologist has told me to drink lemon juice morning and evening, as he says it will, you know, um, improve the bladder by alkalizing the urine and how can that be um i'm not sure because if you take acid into your body then the urine system is going to say well i've got too much acid in my body because your kidney the renal system is very important in controlling your blood chemistry so if your blood becomes too acidic then you will compensate for this by shedding more acid in your urine if your blood system becomes too alkaline then your kidney will compensate by alkalinizing the urine so that's the metabolic compensation that goes on with the kidney and it plays a really important role and if you don't have good kidney function then actually you become so-called acidotic you can't get rid of enough hydrogen ions or acid particles and as a result your blood chemistry becomes very acidic so i'm not really sure why drinking pure lemon juice which is quite acidic Mm. it's citric acid why that should make a difference maybe you'd like to send me the reference and i'll have a look at it for you i did google it and they they do say that lemon juice is good for for um you know utis but uh, i cannot myself work out how that can actually be Ah, well, it depends on it depends on whether or not they're saying. Um, I, I, it might be a terminology thing. It may be that you're still shedding more protons in your urine, but uh, it, I, I'd need to look at the reference and uh, let me poke into it a little bit for you and find out what's what's going on there. I hadn't I hadn't heard that one before. There are other things that we give to people to acidify urine and break down kidney stones and stuff like that. But let me have a look into it and come back to you. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks, Louise. Thank you. That's Louise and Littleton. Laurel in Kelvin. Good morning. Good morning, welcome. And uh, both in there. Um, my question really... <laughs> That's an old phrase now. <laughs> hello, hello. Yes, Lauren, carry on. Yeah, please. Um, my question is based on the, the, the Voyager spacecraft. Uh, how far is it? Did it eventually bridge the, the perimeter or the boundary of uh, the solar system? And if it has... Uh, are we getting any feedback and what type of feedback are we getting it? Uh, the second quick one is uh, where about are we on the Milky Way? Are we on the outer edge or towards the middle of the, uh, the Milky Way? Thank you. i listen on the radio. Hello, Lauren. Well, the Voyager spacecraft launched from the Earth quite some time ago now, but just about within my lifetime. And initially it had a mission to explore some of the planets of our solar system, things like the giant planets. But it was so well built that once it exited the perimeter of where our current planets are, 
it, it began to actually leave our solar system and it's carried on working and so scientists have stayed in contact with it and it continues just about to send back data. So it's got to the stage now where we think it's effectively leaving our solar system. It's reached something called the heliopause and this is where, and, and we know this because there are radiation detectors on Voyager and it is sending back data from those receptors or those receivers and it can tell the difference between the particles that are coming from our sun and the particles that are in interstellar space because they're different energies and they're different species of particles and what normally happens is that our sun creates a solar pressure a solar wind which pushes out into space fending off these particles coming in from interstellar space but where the pressure from the sun has spread out sufficiently that it becomes roughly the same force as the particles are trying to apply coming in you get to this thing called the heliopause and beyond that you're just into interstellar space and over the last few years Voyager has been sending back signals suggesting that it has reached this margin of our solar system so that means it's now in interstellar space and its next rendezvous will be with another star in about 40,000 years time where are we in the Milky Way? Well, the Milky Way is our galaxy. There's something like 100 to 150,000 light years between us and the other side of the Milky Way galaxy, and something like 1 to 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It's a spiral galaxy, which is a bit like if you stirred a cup of coffee and then dropped a blob of cream into the middle of the, stir of the um, churning cup, it would spin out into uh, a spiral pattern. That's roughly what our Milky Way galaxy looks like, and we're in one of the outer arms on one side. So it's a flat sheet of stars, uh, roughly, and we're on the outer edge of, of one of those arms. Is it Hugh in Kestenov, or Thomas wants me to take an ad break? Okay, Hugh, I'm coming to you in a moment, promise. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. The Naked Scientist is with us. And we go to Hugh in Kestenhof. Good morning. Good morning, Rudy. Good morning, Chris. How are you guys? Fine. Welcome. Awesome, man. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to, to ask Chris, the, um, we've always been taught that the center of the Earth is a liquid, molten lava, liquid matrix. But there's a thing called base resonance frequency, which is a frequency that is, comes from the center of the Earth. And, and sort of uh, can be measured on the surface. And would that not, because uh, some of the theories are that there's a, the center of the Earth is actually a, a large iron ore crystal. And, um, you know, that's where the base resonance frequency emanates from. Uh, can I get Chris's feedback from that? Good morning. Yes, there is evidence that the Earth does hum. It's not just bees. The Earth hums as well, and it hums with a very low frequency of a, of a, her, of a couple of hertz, I think. Uh, but you can certainly detect this if you put sensitive measures inside the, uh, in, into the ground. What's inside the Earth? Well, it's not strictly true that there's a liquid core to the Earth. The centre of the Earth has a molten iron outer core, and the inner core is almost certainly solid, I'd say, probably because of the intense pressure. There's a 6,000 kilometres between us and the inside core of the Earth and therefore the Earth is uh, subject to a very huge pressure at its centre. But that core is turning, and the outer core is swishing around, and this gives rise to a phenomenon called a geodynamo. The movement of the iron, and we don't really know how it does this, but the movement of that iron core almost certainly contributes to some kind of electric field effect, which in turn contributes to the magnetic effect that the Earth has, the magnetic field, 
which simulates a giant bar magnet inside the Earth with the south pole of that bar magnet pointing to where our north pole is and the north pole of that magnet pointing to where we call the south pole. And the effect is it creates a big magnetic envelope all around the Earth and this protects us from radiation coming in from space. Exactly how that works and why it works that we just don't know at this stage and we know that planets who don't have that process because they've cooled down and their core has gone solid like mars have lost their magnetic field and this has led to them probably drying uh, drying out and becoming a much less hospitable place for life thank you so much hugh and um, was it ricardo ricardo in Kemp- in not kempton park cape town good morning to you ricardo Hi, morning, really. Mm. Um, I just have a question for Chris. Um, the previous caller spoke about the Voyager, and I was just thinking, wondering, how does it signal, with whatever it is that they're detecting, similar with the, uh, the Hubble telescope, how does that signal get sent back to Earth? We know that that signal uh, is lost over distance. So I was just wondering, how does, how does that stuff get sent back, the data? Well, the data the is sent um, using radio or microwave signals. These probes have big dishes on them and they send using the dish a focused beam of radio signals effectively it's a form of light isn't it? it's electromagnetic radiation and they beam that data back to the earth now the next question is of course how does the radio transmitter get powered well in the case of things like hubble these probes are bedecked with big arrays of solar panels and there's a lot of sunlight for them to catch capture around the earth and so hubble charges its batteries to maintain a steady state supply and uses that to then run a radio transmitter which beams signals back if you're voyager though and you are uh, way out there in interstellar space there's so low so little light intensity that solar panels just wouldn't work how do they do it then well they use radiation and these probes have got a plutonium cell on them, a plutonium battery. What it does is to use the breakdown or decay radioactively of an intensely radioactive source. This produces heat as it decays. The heat is fed into a thermoelectric generator, which is a device which exploits the difference in temperature between something very hot and something very cold to push electrons around in other words to create an electrical current so on the voyager probe there is a radiation cell which is generating electricity using thermoelectrics like this and that is being used to power the transmitter and the transmitter sends the data back it's a very weak signal and you can only send small amounts of data once the bandwidth is not very high so it takes a a long time to send a reasonable amount of data but if you've got a big dish a big collecting area on the earth which we have then you can collect that data as it comes in and it's taking a day for the signals the voyager probe is so far away now that it takes a day for the light traveling at the speed of light 300,000 kilometers every second to get back to us is it terry in mayersdale good morning yes it is um hi chris really yes terry good morning good morning, good morning. um it is i have a thought that um the day on which we are born affects our character and this is the reasoning our body is mostly fluid um, including hormones and hormones affect character now the constellation of stars the moon and so on affects the liquid on Earth. That's why we have high tide and low tide. So if I'm born on a certain day, the constellation would be in a certain way, and that would affect the way certain of my hormones um, um, are released at my time of birth, and consequently my behavior and character. Your question is? That's my question. Is, is that sort of reasoning Is there correlation correct? between dating which you are born 
and uh, your, your character based on everything that you've just uh, you've just related. So, Chris, how do you answer that? It's certainly true that time of birth, and I don't mean time on the clock, I mean time of year mm-hmm. in which we're born, makes a difference to health risk. Babies who are born in the winter and whose mothers succumb to various winter infections like flu, for example, during their pregnancy, those babies have a higher risk of certain conditions during life than babies that are not born in the winter. One good example is schizophrenia, the mental illness. Mm -hmm. We don't know why, but there is a strong association between being born in the wintertime and developing this condition. It's possible that there may be perhaps other infections circulating at this time. Perhaps the mother's physiology, the way her body works, is different in the winter, subtly, and this has an effect of loading the dice so that you have a higher chance of developing one of these conditions. At the moment, we're not sure, but what's going to change in the future is that we're beginning to get the tools in our hands now where you can ask hard questions like this by saying, Mm. well, let's read the DNA code of individuals, let's read the epigenetic code, these are extra messages which are laid down on top of the DNA code and control how genes work. Let's marry those now to things like information about when people are born, what time of day they're born and so on, and look for outcomes. And we're going to start seeing some interesting trends emerging which will lead us to these sorts of answers. But at the moment, we just don't know. In terms of whether the time of year you're born really affects the character of an individual, I think that one's very, very difficult to say. Um, This is sort of the, 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 the... theories that astrology is founded on and I don't think there's any really good evidence that being born at one day or another day really affects your character but at the same time it, it, it depends what you define as character so if, uh, if, if having a higher risk of depression or schizophrenia it can be regarded as part of your character then I suppose in some respects yes the time mm. of year you're born in does affect what happens to you later in life. Here's a question here Norman wants to know why do we lose our appetite when we feel unwell? Right, well, there's very good data on this, and it's probably the same science, actually, that uh, is why people who develop a cancer develop uh, dramatic weight loss. And often one of the first signs that people have got something like cancer or other chronic illnesses is that they'll go to their doctor saying, I've lost a lot of weight. And then the doctor says, well, have you had any other symptoms? And then it turns out they may have a chronic illness or cancer. And the reason this happens is that when you have a chronic inflammatory condition, an infection or a cancer, it tends to drive your immune system very, very hard and you produce lots of immune signals. Those immune signals go to the brain's hypothalamus and the hypothalamus Mm. contains various centres or or nuclei, clusters of nerve cells that control very important aspects of how the body works. One of these regions is concerned with appetite and energy regulation. It balances how much energy your body spends with how much energy your body takes in to compensate. And these immune signals trigger this brain area to shift the balance in favour of burning off more calories than it takes in and the result is that you tend to lose weight. Mm. Now, why that should be adaptive or beneficial, I don't think anyone really really knows. It, it may be a mistake that's a consequence of, of the way the body's working because when you're unwell, uh, you obviously don't want to be take, taking time off to go and catch loads of food. You just want to rest and recuperate. And it might be that uh, appetite is temporarily suppressed to sort of starve out bugs and things which are trying to prey on you. But in fact, if you have a, a chronic infection, it can in fact be very bad for you not to have enough energy coming in. So I, th- I think it's probably an, an evolutionary error and uh, and shouldn't really be, be happening. But who knows? Hmm. 
Is it uh, Mark? Mark in Barberton. Good morning. Morning, really. Uh, morning, Chris. Chris, uh, two questions, but uh, very important. One, why when I use castor oil stool, uh, uh, Chris, my stool will come burning my exhaust? That's number one. Number two, the issue of morality in science world. Why will we have different views in as far as people will vouch on a, on a point where they say, this is the right thing, and as time goes on, it will be found to have been wrong. The morality in the science world, where, where, where is it getting lost? Is it based on the individual as a human being or its other interests? Science and ethics. Let's deal with the first one, castor oil. A lot of parents loved this one, uh, to clean our stomachs. And... Uh, mm. <laughs> Well, yeah. what I can say about that is it's an aperient. Um, it's a purging agent. It basically makes things slip through very, very quickly. And when things slip through, then they can carry through with them the other the, the products of digestion, which includes contributions made by the microorganisms that live in your intestines and also parts of your digestive juices and so on. And when it comes through, some of those things can actually irritate the skin around your, as it's so nicely put, exhaust pipe. So I can, I can suggest I don't know the answer, but I can suggest here that what's coming out includes things which may be irritant to your surface skin, and that's why it gets a bit painful. In terms of science morality, well, for the last few hundred years, ever since science has existed, because science didn't used to exist as a discipline, it was actually people who, who like Robert Hooke and that lot who founded the Royal Society, Isaac Newton, who then said that they, they, were, that they were really the first generation of scientists, and out of that came the scientific method, and the whole idea that you apply a set of rules to rigorously do scientific exploration. You don't just think, I believe the sky is blue because there's cheese in, in orbit around the Earth and that makes the sky blue or something. You actually say, well, I think this is what's going on. Now I'm going to design an experiment to test what I think, my hypothesis, and on the basis of my findings, then I will refine and revise my hypothesis and then ask more questions and do more experiments. So in other words, it's an evidence-based discipline. And, and, and it's a very good discipline in the sense that you're not being biased by personal opinion. You have personal ideas and you ask questions and those questions lead you to ask more questions and we slowly grow a body of knowledge. I hope that answers the question. Thank you so much, Chris. We'll see you again next week. All right. Thanks, Reedy. Thank see you, you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.